A couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together and Took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing. And I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer. And I I feel like I don't miss a beat. And it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, They have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, Light. They have Upside uh, Dawn Golden. They have Run Wild IPA. They have a Hazy IPA. They have Summer Seasonals. They've got a a Lemon Rattler, Ripe Pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. The presenting sponsor of the Audible is Trader Joe's. Bruce, I know you were there this week. Stu, I go every week. There's stuff I get there that I cannot get at Ralph's, which is our local uh, big supermarket in Southern California, I guess in all of California. But Trader Joe's is a must stop for our family every week just for so many things. And indeed, whether you're looking for snacks for game time, steaks for the grill at dinner time, or sweets for any time, check out your neighborhood Trader Joe's for the best values on the best tasting stuff every day. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is the Monday morning after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. I'm still buzzing from it. I don't know about you, Bruce. You you actually covered the NCAA tournament, but I feel like you covered the, like the only corner of the bracket that wasn't particularly eventful. Yeah, it was it was pretty dreadful. The two games I got Sunday, I got Clemson and Auburn, which was like a 40-point game at one point, and then I got West Virginia Marshall, which was interesting for the first 10 minutes, and then that turned into a 30-point game as well. So it's still fun to be around the atmosphere, but it was uh, it was a dud. I got to say, this was the first time in almost a decade that I had no work responsibilities because at The Athletic, the field house at Davis's college basketball site is stocked full of great college basketball writers. They don't need me. So... 
I actually took, I had not taken a day of vacation yet since I started there. So I actually took two days of vacation for the first two days of the tournament. Only basically left my couch to go to a sports bar. And I have to say, I do not miss covering the NCAA tournament. This was a blast to just sit back and watch it for fun. And I read some great stories, especially from, if you read Brian Hamilton's, uh, I think he stayed up all night writing his story from the UMBC upset. And I loved reading it, but I didn't envy him having to pull that all-nighter and do that. It's uh, I'm at a point in my life where I just want to – it's such a great event, and I just want to watch it for fun. Well, to me, the, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of fireworks in the first couple of days, but the real story obviously was for the first time ever, a 16 seed beats a, a number one seed Virginia. And you know what was so remarkable is as you're watching it, that was a blowout. I went back yeah. and looked. That was a 20-point uh, blowout. And that was only the, like the, there's only been two times that Virginia in the previous four years had had 20 point losses. Now, having said that, this wasn't, I don't want to diminish it in this regard, but this wasn't, you know, I saw people talking about like where it ranks in all time upsets of sports. And, you know, people are throwing out Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson. Obviously, it's, it's an all timer for NCAA tournament because it had never happened. But Virginia, it's not like Virginia's won NCAA championships or been to Final Fours. I mean, they had a great year. How big of a deal was this beyond just the 16 to 1? You're the bracket guy. Well, as a fan of the NCAA tournament, as somebody who's been watching it for 30 something years and, and just I, I happen to know, you know a lot of bracket trivia and whatnot, I mean, this was this was the pen. This was like, a, you know, something that you didn't think was possible finally happening. So, from that extent, from that point of view, it was unbelievable. I, I think I'll always remember. I was actually we went to. I went to dinner with my family somewhere that had TVs but didn't have that game on and just saw the early score that they were hanging around and didn't think much of it. But then on the car on the way home, which was only like a five-minute drive, I had it on the radio, and that was when UMBC first took like a five- or seven-point lead. And I thought, wait a minute, is this actually possible? And then got home and watched the rest of it and just – it was just such it was just such a cool moment. But to your point, I did see people bring up Mike Tyson, Buster Douglas, and I was thinking, well – not it's only it's only that if Mike Tyson had been like <laughs> if Mike Tyson had been like a champion who people still didn't truly believe in like Virginia has been this polarizing program for the last 5 years in that nobody could dispute how dominant they've been in the ACC and they ran away with that conference this year and they absolutely deserved the number 1 overall seed and yet you still felt like because of the way they play because they've gone out early in the tournament before, or at least not reached the Final Four as a one seed. No, I didn't think they were going to lose to UMBC, but I certainly, frankly, went in with the expectation that they would fall short of the Final Four. I just didn't trust them. And so to that, in, in that regard, if you look back now, I guess this had the... If, if it was going to happen, it would require a one seed like that who is not doesn't have three future lottery picks and is you know a little bit mortal... But like you said, it's not like they lost on a buzzer beater. Like the idea, and I think this especially sank in after watching UMBC's second round game where they really did look like a 16 seed. They were, I think, 160th in Ken Palm. Like there's a big, big difference. And I don't know if people realize this from the out, you know, if you don't obsess over bracketology. The difference between a Loyola, who is an 11 seed, but is number 36 on Ken Palm, higher than a lot of the, not a lot, but a few of the, at large teams versus UMBC, who is 166th, is massive. So 
You tell me Loyola beats Virginia? Okay, you know, be, still be a big upset, but sort of makes sense. This makes no, I mean, it really makes no sense how they not only beat them, but, you know, we're up 20 late in the game. Yeah, they were up 20 at the end of the game. At the end uh, of the game. Hey, just a random question. So, you know, when you're covering another series of games, you can, you can only pay so close attention. I'm in the press room, and I'm trying to watch the Michigan State-Syracuse game. There was a review that happened that everything I had saw sure looked like the ball went off the Michigan State guy's leg last, and somehow they got the ball back. Was What, what did I miss there? Because I couldn't hear the volume what they were talking about. It's been four days of basketball. Everything's a blur. There are so many questionable calls. I remember the play you're talking about. I don't remember exactly what happened. I remember it was a very close call. Uh, what you really missed, though, if you were watching those San Diego games, was my hometown. You know, I grew up in Cincinnati. Big Xavier fan, but also would root for UC. You know, when you're grew up, in, if you're a college basketball fan, in Cincinnati. You know, those are the schools you you pay closest attention to. And back to back, at the same site in Nashville, they both choked away big leads, although UC's was, I think, twice as big. For a city that has kind of not had a lot of good luck in sports recently with the Reds and the Bengals, this was just brutal. I I can't remember anything like it to have a team that was a one seed and a team that was a two seed blow huge leads in the second round and not make it to the second weekend. And for Xavier, it's it's, I, I was texting with my buddy who's a big Xavier fan. I'm like, you know what? It was a lot more fun when they were an 11 seed or they were the one crashing the party and you it was just a, exciting if they won a game or two. When you're a one seed and this is the first time it's ever happened for them, you basically the whole first weekend is just, I hope they don't lose. I hope they don't embarrass themselves. Like it, if they won the game, it would just be a relief. There's no joy in advance. You know, it's a really big deal when the first time Xavier ever made it to the Sweet 16. When you're a one seed, it's like that's the bare minimum for it to be acceptable. The other thing I, I forgot about, because it's the first about first time in, I guess, 10 years that I've covered a, an NCAA tournament game, especially when it's a blowout when a lot of the stadium thins out, and you may have like a couple of fans who you barely re- you noticed for the first half of the game, and then when, when they get bored in a blowout, you just hear them riding one particular person, and it's like the, uh, you know, the term earworming where you can't get the song out of your mind. I had a couple of West Virginia fans were just for some reason they were just wearing wearing out one name and I'm like man that's all like I had a two hour drive home last night and it just was like kind of echoing in my head. I mean I had a, I covered the West Virginia Gonzaga Sweet 16 game last year and the West Virginia fans behind me spent the entire game yelling at this one ref. I guess they had a beef with this one ref from from earlier in the season and they just spent the whole game riding him. Yeah, and look that's I guess that's part of the fun kind of. <laughs> element of of being in a in a small arena too is you can kind of pick up like everybody was trying to get bob huggins to go for 100 points which they came close but they didn't uh they didn't get um listen we got one of our absolute friends of the podcast coming on here in a minute and tim brando but real quick do you want to recount your experience with the press box or press row seating at the game um sure so i have two little little stories the first one was I, I wasn't unable to cover the the Friday games in San Diego, so I came in uh, Saturday morning, and so I I took taken a look at the seating chart, and I knew I was down towards the end of the baseline across from the West Virginia bench, and um, and so I had seen there were two SI seats, one for SI and one for SI for kids, and before I was going out, I ran into the uh, the new Auburn AD, so we talked for a little while. 
And I basically came out during player introductions. And then I saw, oh, there's the SI for kids kids. But I wasn't sure if it was his mom or somebody who was working with him. And so I felt really bad because I didn't want to say, hey, you know, she was like, well, look, I'll move. And I was like, oh, I don't want to split you guys up. And I really knew at that point I wasn't writing off of the Clemson-Auburn game. So I was like, oh, I'll just kind of move. And I'm just thinking, I was like, this probably, I wonder if this dilemma has happened where you just don't want to be a jerk and say to the, to the, to them, you guys got to move or anything like that. But I was like, does this happen? Does this happen to Stu or Staples before? I've never, cause we don't, we, I never had an ESPN for kids and certainly didn't have a Fox sports for kids. So it was just kind of weird. Well then anyway, once Clemson's done, their radio guys left and they ended up sitting closer to center court and. I sat where you know in the original seat for the second game, and I glance over and there's a man who sits down next to me, and I mean, I, it was like a dead ringer for Moonlight Graham from Field of Dreams, and so I'm like, wow, this is unreal. Am I the only one seeing it? And a friend of mine who works in the West Virginia athletic department on the football side just happened to be in the building, and I had seen him at halftime, and I was like, I texted him the picture. And all he said, sends back is go the distance. And I just started breaking out and laugh. But um, Well, how old would that thing is, though? How old would that after be today? <laughs> Listen, we're keeping our guest waiting. And, you know, he's got he's got a tea time that he's got to get to. So uh, we, we don't, want to, we don't want to hold him up. We are pleased to be joined by our old buddy, a man who needs no introduction. And if you ask some of our colleagues, probably deserves no introduction. The iconic <laughs> Tim Brando. Tim, uh, we're glad to have you on, especially now because you covered a lot of college basketball, not just for Fox Sports and Fox FS1, but also for your job uh, with Raycom as well, which has you in the ACC. So I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about what you've seen on a crazy first weekend of the tournament. Stu and I were both pretty riveted. What jumped out at you, Tim? Well, all that we anticipated, it's great to be with both of you, by the way, again. Um, a lot of what we anticipated, I think, came to fruition in that college basketball's landscape is flat. You know, if we talk in college football about great teams not being as great as they once were, which I think is true to some extent, you can take that same statement, put it on steroids, and that's college basketball. That's where we are in the sport. The brand names are still the brand names, but they're not as great as they once were. By example, North Carolina was outmanned by Texas A&M. Okay, outmanned. Davis and Williams were unguardable for North Carolina. It's very rare you ever say that about a Tar Heels team. When do they hit the floor where guys in their backcourt are fearful of driving to the basket because the ball's going to be going back the other way, starting a fast break off a block shot? That, that happened to them against Texas A&M. And there was a numeral next to Texas A&M that was a lot lower on the scale, according to the seedings that the tournament selection committee put out than that of North Carolina. So that's just one example. 16 beating a one. Am I shocked that ha that happened this year? Absolutely not. Because we had been close a few times before, not as often as maybe you would think, but we've been close before. In fact, I, I had one of those games in my first ever NCAA tournament that I called for CBS. Western Carolina had a chance to beat number one seeded Purdue in Albuquerque with a three. Long rebound off the iron, unkind, a two to tie it, to send it to overtime, missed that. And then a third opportunity with a layup and missed it, or we might have gone to OT. That was, you know, 22 years ago. So it's, it's, 
it's not that we should be shocked the 16B to 1, but I think we're going to see more of it from this point forward because of the way the sport's going. The, the so-called mid-majors, what it, what it raises, fellas, is that you know Loyola of Chicago is going to be playing in a game that I think no one ever anticipated in the round of 16 against Nevada. You take a look at that and you say, wow, would we ever have noticed that? Well, the committee made sure that we didn't get to see as much of it as we could because Middle Tennessee State should have been in this tournament, and they're not. So they're doing everything that they can to protect the big names now with this circus called uh, the Quadrant One and Quadrant Two thing when we already had the RPI in there to take care of it. But even still, they're not going to be able to stop the upsets because the, 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 the talent is all over the place. And all of the veteran talent is at other places besides the brand names who are chock full of one and done. So that's why we're where we are right now. So, Tim, I agree with you for the most part in general. There's no question it's more wide open. And I think, you know, if you followed the regular season this year, you kind of see something like this weekend coming in terms of I didn't think this was a particularly great set of, you know, one, two and three seats. But in terms of 16 over one, we were just talking about this before you came on. It's not like UMBC was Middle Tennessee or Loyola. You yeah, know, right. Real. I mean, this team lost, I believe, eighty three thirty nine to Albany at one point in the season. <laughs> they're they're just yeah. by any yeah. metric, they're not a good yeah. team. How could you not be shocked that they not only upset Virginia but clobbered them? Because in college basketball, you play so many games. It's not like football, Sue. You play so many games, and then you go through attrition. You lose players either because of suspensions or because of injury, then you get players back. By example, I mentioned A&M at the outset. Texas A&M was a team in December that got as high as the top five in the country. Then they had suspensions, they had injuries. Now they're getting these guys back. They have evolved back into the team that I think we all thought they could have been, but had forgotten about when they went on the losing skid, and it was a long one that they had at the SEC. UMBC did lose by an awful amount and would not have been in this tournament had not they played their their butts off, knowing that if they lost, they were done. That goes back for weeks. They had to win every game in their tournament, or they don't get in, uh, because they were an automatic bid team. So th- that's what happens in college basketball that is uniquely different from college football, in that through different phases of the season, those games that are played in November and December, and you can procure a lot of other scores that would be embarrassing for probably all 16 teams that are out there. Now, I saw Jim Beheim the last week of February lose at Georgia Tech. And at that time, he was telling me, Tim, my guys, we just don't have enough guys to shoot. And he doesn't. He doesn't have, he doesn't have one pure shooter on his team from the perimeter. But look what they're doing now. You know, they're doing the same thing that they did a couple of years ago when they knocked out top seed in Virginia when – I thought Tony Bennett had his best opportunity to go to a, a, a Final Four before this year. So the college basketball, much more so than football, is a game of evolution. And the complexion of a team can change about every two to three weeks if you're keeping up. And that's the problem. From a national standpoint, people don't keep up with college basketball. And you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, the daytime shows that you watch on ESPN and Fox. I'm talking about all the national media that's not covering college basketball regularly. Uh, they're all amazed when, when we see these upsets, and those of us that are following the game regularly aren't because we've seen the season 
play out. We've seen the evolution of the regular season. But uh, back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, when college basketball was flourishing, uh, and the NBA drama story wasn't out there every stinking day, we had a better opportunity to understand what we could expect when the NCAA tournament began. Now we don't, because we've got a selection of drive-by media that doesn't give a damn about the sport until Selection Sunday. Tim, how much do you think that really, really matters practically, though? I think it matters when we start talking about how surprised we are. Okay, I'm not surprised. Stu's indicating to me that he is. Well, I'm not. I was out there with my own eyes, sitting at midcourt, watching these teams play. And I I called a few bad games back in November and December. You know, not every game is going to be a great game. You know, it's it's interesting to me because the networks use college basketball for inventory's sake. You know, to plug a lot of holes to get live sports television going in 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 the months of November, December, January, February, and yet no one's paying attention to what actually is on the air with original programming and discussing it. It it, it rarely gets there are rarely highlights on Sports Center anymore. And the only shows that are out there showing highlights are those shows, and you don't see many of them. I'll give credit to Scott Van Pelt. He spent some good time on college basketball only because he's a fan of it. But for the most part, you just don't see a lot of real college basketball conversation from the mainstream sports media during the course of the regular season. So uh, for those of us that are out there doing it, and, most, and, and I'm talking about the guys that are in the, in the field, uh, on, the, on, the, on the courts getting ready to produce these games, we're sort of like Lone Rangers out there. There's not a lot of national media coverage of the regular season of college basketball. It's just not. All right, we'll get back to the podcast in a minute, but Stu, in the last year, you've become a boss, a real one, where you're hiring people, and that's something that you, that I have never done. That's something that, as far as my knowledge, you have never done. So how do you do it? How do you decide who you want to bring on and what, what the attributes you're looking for in a, uh, in a colleague are? Well, it's very challenging. It's cha- challenging to find great talent, and you need all the help you can get, and that brings us to our sponsor for this week's podcast, and that's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free, Bruce. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. That is the audible Stu and Bruce. ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. And you get to try it for free. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Tim, I want to give my colleague who is a bracketologist and who you've basically insinuated has had his head in the sand or someplace else. Stu, defend yourself. Yep. Well, to be clear, the only thing I'm surprised by is 16-seed UMBC beating number one-seed Virginia by 20. And I'm not even a big Virginia believer. Like, I didn't pick them to go to the Final Four. But that's just, when we were talking before about where that ranks in the all-time sports upsets. Everything else that happened this weekend was just, it was fantastic, it was exciting, but it was the NCAA tournament. And, you know, Loyola going to the Sweet 16 is a fantastic story. Sister Jean, everybody loves Sister Jean. But that team, anybody that followed this year knows that team's really good and perfectly capable of beating Tennessee and Miami. Like, that's not, 
that's not as to that's more like what you're saying. Like that's not that surprising to people who follow college basketball. It may be to somebody who just sees a number on a bracket. But uh, what do you think, all in all, Tim? There were so many upsets this weekend. More than half of the top three seed or the top sixteen teams in the country did not make it to the next weekend. Does that mean? I was saying to Bruce, I, in my experience, that means as as riveting and as exciting as the first weekend was, it could make for kind of a uh, dreadful Sweet 16. It could. It could, because we could see chalk move forward. By example, uh, Kentucky might have the easiest road that any Blue Blood program has seen, according to the bracket, in a long, long time. But if you just buy into that and say that's the only, that's the only thing you, you glean from what happened last week, you could be sadly mistaken, because I think Kentucky – could potentially have a lot of trouble with the defensive work that Bruce Weber's team at Kansas State can do. It wasn't easy, by the way, for them to do what they did with UMBC being the darling that they were in the second round. Uh, and I was very impressed with the way they played. And, you know, Nevada, you know, what a what an incredible story they are. And Bill Musselman, how proud of Eric must he be? You think about the Musselman family and the job that that guy's done. Nevada was was not to me a surprise either. I had them through to the Sweet 16. I had them getting this far, to your point. But I think the reality is there are those out there that believe the tournament's not the tournament without the big boys getting the job done. And there's a chance that the remaining big boys could go through pretty easily. A lot will depend, I think, on what happens with the Duke-Syracuse game. Because, you know, either way, those are two teams that people are comfortable watching. They have an understanding of who they are and what they are. But I'm not sure that either one of them are, are capable of winning the national title. I don't think either of them could play with Villanova. I mean, I really don't. Villanova is without question the one team that's out there, the one team that's out there that we know is, is legitimate in every sense. They've got six guys that shoot better than 40% from deep. They have multiple ball handlers, even Stelman, the seven-footer, can handle it. If uh, Jalen Brunson's not the best player in college basketball, I don't know who is. But if you decide to take him away, then DiVincenzo can bring the ball up the floor just as easily. I think Villanova probably is the team, in a lot of ways, that can salvage the interest of the tournament coming out of their region and then moving on and playing for the national championship for the second time in three years. But Sue, to your point about uh, UMBC for just a second, I did think Virginia was a great team, and I did believe with DeAndre Hunter they could go ahead and win it all. And I was shocked after watching them with my own eyes after what they did in the ACC tournament, just taking people away the way they did. And Hunter, by the way, is a future pro. When they lost him, and I think they were surprised that they did, I think it had an impact on them emotionally. And it showed up to some extent when UMBC got that double-digit lead because Hunter was a player that could break you down off the dribble when everything else was not going right for them and made them a different team. I changed my bracket upon the news of DeAndre. I had Virginia actually playing Nova and winning. And I took them off my line, went back and put Arizona in, who I thought had been very impressive down the stretch. And how much did I know? I mean, look what happened to them. For them to get blown, that was, as, that was as embarrassing a loss for a power program as I've seen in some time. And what an awful year for the Pac-12. Hey, Tim, since we're a college football podcast, I want to transition over to something from the tournament. And 
something we had noticed on social media, the, the UCF Knights official account on Twitter. Amazing what happens when an underdog gets a fair shot in an expanded playoff. Congrats on the history of UMBC Athletics. Also, uh, Neil Brown, coach at Troy, who knows a little something about knocking off a big-time program, he tweeted, the last two nights are why I love March Madness. Congrats to all the lower seeds that are surprising everyone but themselves. We need these opportunities in college football. So you championed the uh, mid-majors a lot with college hoops. Mm-hmm. Is this completely two different worlds, or should this be something like, hey, this is we need to expand to eight and make sure that there's room for some mid-majors? We certainly need to expand at the minimum to six. I don't know that that necessarily would give the mid-majors in college football the opportunity that both coaches there were talking about. But I do agree that well, if you expand, to, expand to eight, you might. Yeah, it, well, I think that you definitely do if you go to eight, which is, I think, the optimum number. But as you know, and I've said this many times before, in intercollegiate athletics, whether the NCAA is directly or indirectly involved, we don't, we, we're not very progressive, okay? We're caught in the, the muckety-muck of too much history, tradition, and inability to share revenues. I do think that it would be really, really wise for the um, – uh, the non-Power 5 uh, leagues to get together and form a coalition so they could speak with a larger voice. That's, I think, their biggest problem right now is they need to be able to speak with a larger voice. And to do that, the commissioners of those leagues and the athletic directors and presidents of those leagues need to get together. I think they actually should form a group for a television coalition so that we could have a group of five game of the week that's seen nationally. I think that would be something that, given the uh, the need for more live sports television, quality live sports television, would be something that they could actually uh, they could actually make money with. You know, now th- some of these conferences are, are are struggling to make online deals so they can get their property out there because networks aren't really willing to to look at Conference USA or Mountain West on its own merits and say, oh yeah, we'll pay this much for the rights to carry your games nationally. But if you put all five of those leagues together. And you said, okay, we're going to give you the best that we've got from week to week. Then I think it might be worth something. But ultimately, until uh, those that are in power, and that's, that's the, the commissioners of the Power Five conferences, are willing to, to say, you know what, we need to expand this. You know, we're not going to see that. And I, we're probably further away than I, I, I want us to be of doing to, to getting to that point. You know, my experience with this over the years is that, you know, the two sports are almost opposite in that obviously everybody roots for Cinderella in college basketball and in the NCAA tournament. In college football, it's they reach, root for them up to a point, but when they actually become, when we actually start talking about them as having a chance at the national championship, there's almost a mutiny from certain parts of the country. And look at what's going on right now with the continued war of words between Alabama and UCF. Like, UCF is no threat whatsoever. To, they are not going to come steal that trophy. You want it. Why can't they have their fun? But, you know, Greg Byrne, the Alabama AD, took a little a little shot. It wasn't too bad, but I guess the two teams played in the women's NIT the other day. Great win today over UCF for Alabama wins basketball. We're not ready to make it more than it was and schedule a Disney parade, but we'll definitely take it. UCF's AD Danny well. White was not pleased with that. So, you know, yeah. I'm talking about going back to when Boise State was really good with uh, Kellen Moore. You know, people would just get so angry 
that oh, yeah. sports writers yeah. dared to suggest they could play with the Alabamas and whatnot. So I don't, I don't I, know if there is an appetite for this in football. <laughs> well, uh, you guys know my political lean, but when it comes to this particular issue, I was certainly in Boise's court, and I was deemed a socialist by my friends in the <laughs> SEC. Now, how dare you, Brando? You know, I just think that there's absolutely uh, – I have no problem with what Greg Burns said, by the way, because he was just chirping to his congregation. You know, he's trying to – he's a new AD in Alabama, and this wins over a lot of favor for him with the Crimson Tide followers. So that's that's fine. But but I, I think it does speak to the issues that we have here, and that is the sport itself for it to grow. I mean, there's absolutely no denying that – college football's numbers uh, haven't been what they could be for the, for the national championship. And the reason they haven't been what they could be is because we're not extending beyond the, the power base of the sport. And that is the history and tradition of the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, and, and, and so on. And that, that's a problem. If you want the college football playoff to bring the kind of numbers that the advertisers are being promised by ESPN, you've got to expand it, get more of the geography of our country involved. One of the reasons the tournament does so well, and by the way, not many people are talking about it, the college basketball ratings on Fox this year alone were up 35%. I mean, nobody's really talking about that, but they were. And that was with the addition of of the Big Ten to go along with with the Big East. Well, the postseason, despite how bad the – overall numbers for regular season college basketball might look, the, the the numbers on the tournament are through the roof. They always are. Now, granted, basketball standards are different than football standards. They don't reach the numbers, obviously, of the national championship. But college football could be doing Super Bowl-type numbers if it lasted longer and it engaged more of the country. And when I say lasted longer, I just mean an additional week and, and one additional game. That's that's all we need if we went to 18. So I think there's a lot of merit to it. And this issue that the so-called uh, big boys have about, you know, these upstart programs, many of them out of the American conference, how many more times does one of Mike Oresco's teams need to beat the hell out of a, of a, of a premier program in a bowl game, in a New Year's Six bowl game, for them to get some run? I think part of it's the media's fault. We got a lazy-ass media out there that doesn't want to cover UCF, doesn't want to cover the other UCF, whoever that is, and damn sure didn't want to have to go to Boise years ago either. So I think it's incumbent upon those of us in our business to aggressively report what we know about those schools, even if they're not on at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Tiffany network. Well, Tim, your college football and basketball duties are over for the next several months. How many rounds of golf will you be playing between now and and when we – kick it off in september i have i have made an edict that i will not instagram as many videos bruce <laughs> I, I promise I, i'm just I'm asking for the guys who are stuck in the foursome behind you at southern trace please tim <laughs> cut down on the on the photos of you and your follow-through we know what your butt yeah, looks like in those shorts we know yeah. what your follow-through <laughs> looks like don't okay. uh, <laughs> enough with the slow play tim just just if, I, guys if I make you. an eagle, if I make an eagle or a double eagle, an albatross, I reserve the right to, to put that out. But but uh, otherwise, I'll 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 go easier on it. I promise. 
Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Bruce. Stu, great talking to you. Keep those pictures of the baby coming. I love those. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you very much. You got it. All right, Stu, we appreciate Tim's time and Tim's passion. So let's get to the mailbag. This time uh, I posted something on Twitter, and we got some pretty good questions. We did that, uh, by the way, because people have just stopped emailing us. You know, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I hope this means you're still listening. They just not – maybe you're too busy with brackets and whatnot to write us. But, yes, theaudiblepod at gmail.com. But let's go to the Twitter bag. All right. The first question is from Aaron Martin at WPXI Aaron Martin. By most accounts, Pat Narduzzi is a defensive guru, but his defenses at Pitt have been lacking, to put it nicely. He shouldn't be on the hot seat, but is this a prove-it season for Narduzzi? I think so. He's – it's not like he's had a bad tenure there, but they can be better. And they've, and they've teased it, right? Each of the last two seasons, they've knocked off a team that – was in the playoff hunt, you know, knocked off, actually knocked off the national champions in Clemson in 2016 and then knocked off Miami last year when they were undefeated, but don't have much to show for it overall. So I think it is, this is going to be his fourth season. I think it's fair at this point to expect them to become a, maybe not necessarily win the division, but at least contend for it. Do you, why do you think their defenses haven't been particularly great? I just don't think they've had, you know, the personnel that they pro- he probably needs there. And he's not running the defense. He has a defensive coordinator for that. You know, it's not like they don't have any players on there, but he doesn't have Aaron Donald. It's not like they have that. I don't think their secondary is, is quite as good. Now, they've had some guys who are NFL talent back there. I just don't think across the board it's been strong enough. You know, they've had kind of a rotating group of quarterbacks since he's been there. And I, I just think it's been hard to find, you know, kind of a nucleus to build around. And some of that, I think, is due to all the transition that existed at Pitt before he even got there. He had like seven, you know, dating back to Wanstatt, he had, I think he had like seven coaches there in a span of like five years. And so, I'm not saying that's exactly what the number was, but it just, all that uncertainty, I think, and you've had some instability on his staff. You know, at one point you had Matt Canada. At one point you had Jim Chaney running the offense. Now you got Sean Watson on the other side. You know, it's just it's just been a lot of un- instability. I think if he can, I don't think he's on the hot seat because they've you know really supported him with a new deal recently. But you know, goes for eight and five in the first two years, which I think is pretty good. But last year five and seven. You know, I think if he can get them back into a bowl game, I think that shows him signs that they're going in the right direction. But it is a little curious that they haven't been better on defense, i got to admit, because it's not like they don't have any players. There. Although I'll tell you what, you know, Pitt would fall into the category of one of those teams like, you know, once once a team's out of contention, we kind of stop paying close attention to them. So it wouldn't even have occurred to me. But over their last five games last season, they only gave up. They beat Duke 24-17, Virginia 31-14, lost to UNC 34-31, but then lost to Virginia Tech 20 to 14 and then beat Miami 24 to 14. So they're not they weren't giving up a lot of points by the end of the season last year. Hopefully for them that's a sign of things to come this season. Yeah, and we'll see. You know, like again as we said a lot now it's all his recruits, so it's a little different. Okay, Our from next- Cool Sai writes, rank who's more likely to win a conference title first, Chip Kelly at UCLA 
This is a very long list. <laughs> Who, who's going to win Conversation first? Chip Kelly at UCLA. Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Mario Cristobal at Oregon. Willie Taggart at Florida State. Or Dan Mullen at Florida. I am going to pick Willie Taggart at Florida State. Okay. Uh, I feel pretty confident in that. If I had to rank these in the first two, I would say Willie Taggart at Florida State, Chip Kelly at UCLA would be a, me a clear, clear top two. And one is because two of these guys are in the SEC, and I, ju- I just think that you know Willie's left with some, you know, probably more talent relative than than some of these other guys have, and I I just think that they're going to recruit the heck out of out of that area too. I mean, I think that Willie Taggart of that group is the only one who has a pretty clear path. Like, even if you think Jimbo Fisher is going to get it done at A and M. As long as Nick Saban's in the division, it's hard to believe he's going to be the first of this group. Now, Willie Taggart has to deal with Clemson, who is the national power right now in, in his own division. But if they get it going, you know, and first of all, let's not forget, they're not that far removed from it. Then it's basically going to come down to those two teams in that division, gets the championship game, see if you can win it. Even Dan Mullen, I'm reluctant to, uh, I'm high on him, but I'm reluctant to put him higher on the list because he's got to deal with Georgia, Alabama, and, and et cetera. Chip Kelly, I think you and I would agree, is go- I think he will win a conference title there. How quickly, I don't know. It's, it's, he, didn't inherit, he didn't inherit a whole lot. So would you agree with me, Willie Tiger, or do you have Chip higher? I think I'd go Willie first, Chip second. And then who would you have? Again, it's not about so much about who I think is the best coach or who's going to get his team to be really good first. It's more about the path. So either Cristobal, like Jimbo is going to be last on my list, even though he's won a national championship. But he's in the same conference as Dan Mullen, and he's won a lot more. But at least Dan Mullen's not in the same division as Alabama. But, yeah, we're not talking about winning division. We're talking about winning a conference, though. I know. I'm saying I mean, Dan, Dan Mullen, well... You could say maybe not. This is not the case with what Kirby Smart's got going on at Georgia, but Dan Mullen at least has a slightly easier road just to get Division. to Atlanta than Jimbo Fisher yeah, does. That's a good point. Okay. The next question is from Ween Two Worlds. How successful do you think Scott Frost can be at Nebraska? Very, very successful. Um, no reason why he can't have them contending with Wisconsin for division titles. Very quickly maybe not this coming season but very quickly after that and look you and i it's kind of an evergreen topic that we've talked about many times over the years can nebraska is it realistic that nebraska in this day and age can be a national championship contender like they once were i think that i know in the past i've said no i think you've said no as well but right now there's at least this buzz among the fan base and maybe some people nationally that well if anybody can do it could it be Scott Frost? Uh, he has just done this remarkable turnaround job at UCF. He's going to bring in a unique offensive system there. Guys you would think are going to want to play for it, play in it. A Scott Frost succeeds at Nebraska scenario involves getting to Indianapolis semi-regularly and winning a conference title. I don't think it means national championships. Yeah, I think he's going to be very successful there. Again, it's it, come back to my Jimbo Fisher thing from a while back. How do you define successful when the expectations are so high? If we were to put 
Scott Frost's name on that list with the five guys, would you put him before Chip Kelly? Would you put him after Chip Kelly in second or third? Would you put him below Cristobal in Oregon? I would put him – I'd still put Chip higher, but I'd put him right after that. Yeah, I think part of the reason why I would why I would also put Chip higher, obviously he's got more of a track record as a head coach, but also, you know, the way I look at it, there are going to be potentially four Big Ten teams in the top 12, you know, Ohio State, Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, you know, it could be five in the top 15. Uh, that's a lot steeper hill to climb than just you got Washington and probably USC. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, Washington to me is the only top 15 team right now in the Pac 12, the way I see it. I don't think USC is a top 15 team. So the landscape's much different for me. You, you similar agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can Scott Frost turn Nebraska into the top program in the Big Ten West? Sure. Uh, Wisconsin's really the only one right now in that division that scares you. But even if he does that, he's still got to contend with Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State, teams that either have been doing this for a while or, you know, in the case of a, a Michigan can recruit, just just has more recruiting cachet than Nebraska does. Penn State has it rolling now under James Franklin. So, and, and Urban Meyer, obviously, it's a juggernaut there. So, that's who he's ultimately contending against to win conference championships. That's why I wouldn't have him higher than Taggart or Chip Kelly on that list. All right. And the last question we got is from Zachary Stevenson at ZF Stevenson. Stu, it's a subject that you love. Conference realignment. Realignment clickbait. In light of the Pac-12 struggles, should the Big 12 make an actual push for a few Pac-12 schools and strike back at the other conferences that publicly went after them in 2010? If so, so, would the Arizona schools be the most realistic? So flip the script, whereas the Pac-12 tried to kill off the Big 12 in 2010 and do the Pac-16, he's saying now the Big 12 should play offense and go poach some schools from the Pac-12. Just not sure what that would accomplish. I mean, if the Big 12 could somehow convince USC to come, yeah, absolutely, do it. But what's adding Arizona, Arizona State really going to do for the Big 12? You know, what are you trying to accomplish at this point? The, you know, the impetus for realignment the first time around, or at least the most recent one, was heavily based on how many TV households can I get in my region, right? Everybody wants to build a cable network. How many TV households can I get? That's why Rutgers is in the Big Ten. With that model basically completely falling apart, the cable bundle and people consuming content in completely different ways, I don't think that's going to be the incentive this next time around. So I think the reason, if you're going to, if you're the Big 12 and you want to get to 12, I would suggest doing it with just who can I get that will be the most that will add the most value in terms of just being really good programs and getting us in the playoff frequently and whatnot. And I don't think those Arizona schools are going to do that for you. Yeah, I I think that's pretty much how I feel about it as well. By the way, do you remember when, I guess this was two years ago now, when the Big 12, we spent a good, what, three, four months on this podcast talking about, you know, because it it sure seemed like they were going to do it. David Bourne let us believe they were going to do it. And we kept talking about Big 12 realignment candidates. And you and I... And maybe George Schroeder. I remember he was on this podcast. We were ranking our candidates, and we both had UCF very, very high. Like, 
I might have had them number one. And the Big 12, from all indications, never took those Florida schools seriously. But we just kept saying, UCF is a sleeping giant. And this was, I think this was before, I mean, they might have been coming off the winless season at that point. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was, too. So clearly we're geniuses. We are, as long as Scott Frost is the head coach there. True. Josh Heupel, you know, we'll see how that pans out. But it's still, at the end of the day, I mean, it's for all the reasons Scott Frost took that job, for all the reasons that he was successful. I think if you take UCF and put them in the Big 12, they could end up being one of your top programs. And, and you know, they'd have to build up depth. They'd have to go through the same transition that TCU did, uh, that Utah did in the Pac-12. UCF with a Power 5 affiliation, to me, has a lot of upside. Hey, before we go, I have a question for you. I, I don't remember where I saw this on, on the Internet in the last week, but somebody had had a discussion about a, what program do you remember where they fired the head coach and have never been as good since? And I have an I have I have a, uh, an idea on that one. Can you? That's, you, a, that's stand a big up? question to ask unplanned. <laughs> There's sorry. definitely been some good examples of that. What's What's the criteria though for how successful they were before? I just think that they they were you know never as good as since. And the the guy I thought of I didn't. I, full disclosure, like one of the ideas, you know, the name that came to my mind was Rocky Long, and then I went back and looked, and he wasn't technically fired, and then I was down in San Diego at San Diego State, and I realized he kind of was, and that would be my answer. You know, they have not been, they were pre- they were pretty respectable when he was there, and they've been, for the most part, pretty awful since. Minnesota has never recovered from firing Glenn Mason for that insightful collapse. I mean, everybody liked to mock Glenn Mason. All oh, they always just end up in the Sun Bowl. Well, what is... what? What's the best season Minnesota football has had since Glenn Mason left? You know, they've had some years where they've actually won quite a bit. I'm going to take issue. I'm, I don't think Glenn Mason was a bad coach. But if you look at, um, you know, I don't want to say Tracy Clays might even won nine or ten games. Well, the year that he got fired a couple years ago and they went to the Holiday Bowl, they, um, I want to say they, they won nine. nine. Jerry Kill. Did Jerry Kill ever win ten? All right. I was right. Glenn Mason, when Glenn Mason was there, this is a list of Minnesota in the AP poll. They spent most of the 1999 season in the rankings. They spent most of the 2003 season in the rankings. They spent most of 2004 in the rankings. A couple weeks in 2005. He gets fired in 2006. Since then, give give me the number of you think how many weeks Minnesota has been in the top 25 since 2006. Uh, well, they had a nine-win season under Clay's, and I know they had some eight-win seasons under Jerry Kill. I, let me say at least five. Three. Okay. They were ranked for two weeks in 2008, which would have been uh, Tim Brewster. Tim Brewster had a ranked season? Is that no, possible? No, two weeks. And I'm not, they did, first of all, they haven't finished ranked since 2003. But they Tim were Brewster, in the— I want to say Tim Brewster was like won like six games, six out of— 30 games in the Big Ten. How was if popular? I, well, in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, is when they had Eric Decker. So two glorious weeks, week 9 and 10, they were ranked. And then in 2014, which would have been Jerry Kill, they were ranked for one week. And that's it. So now, P.J. Fleck, maybe he gets it done. We'll see. But to this point, they are still chasing the ghost of Glenn Mason. That's my answer. But I'm thinking there's somebody much more prominent out there that we were supposed to answer. 
Uh, would the guy who beat uh, Glenn Mason in the bowl game be that answer? Texas Tech, since they fired Mike Leach, yeah, it's been pretty. Uh, they have not pretty they rough have going. Been terrible, but they have been nowhere near as good as when the uh, the lunatic was in charge. So, I mean, um, at one point you would have said this about. Well, could we say this about Nebraska post Frank Solich? Frank Solich had them in the national title game. They haven't come close to that since then. No, I mean, look, they yeah, they fired Pelini and. But that hasn't been that long ago. That's basically just Mike Riley. But Pelini had a bunch of nine-win seasons. And ten-win seasons. He lost. It, it will remain one of the strangest oddities to this day. He coached there for six or seven years, and every single season he went either nine and four or ten and four. Yeah. I mean, obviously that was for some of his conduct off the off, on the sidelines as much as anything, I guess. But I still think like we're it. probably missing somebody obvious that the listeners right now are going, how have you not said such and such? What about, wait a minute, what about your alma mater? Miami, since they fired Larry Coker. Yeah, they were just backsliding under under him at that point. Sure. I'm not saying that things would have been any different if he had stayed. But really, last year was the first time since then. Oh, I got one. And this also fits in the category of, you know, of, of the uh, Polini conduct we don't like. Mark Mangino actually did a one at Kansas, which is remarkable, and they have been spectacularly bad since he left. I would agree with that. I mean, they, he had him in a BCS bowl. The curse of they, Mangino. And they have been they're the since they fired him, they have been the worst Power Five program, hands down. Just a series of terrible hires. Turner Gill. Charlie Weiss. Charlie Weiss. And then, I mean, David Beatty really hasn't done. I mean, he beat, he beat Texas. But, yeah, uh, I, think, I think this is a year where we got to see some improvement. I mean, I think he took over the worst of the worst of a power five. It was so bad. We did one of his games the first year. And, it, you know, I, one of my favorite lines, like for an NBA draft, is Fran Fraschilla's. He's a year away from being a year away. I mean, they were a year away from being a year away from competitive. <laughs> well, anybody can eventually dig out of that. We've seen it over and over again. Teams that you thought were never going to be good finally got good. And also, I would just say that as much as people like to make fun of Kansas football, Kansas is investing a huge amount of money in the football program right now. Like They are dead serious about getting this thing back to relevance. Now, whether that whether they have the right coach to do that right now, I don't know. But you don't pour hundreds of millions of dollars into something thinking you're going to just be two and ten for the rest of eternity. Yeah, and look, he's made you know made a splashy offensive coordinator hire last season, uh, getting Doug Meacham from TCU. I know he got one big time recruit in who gives him a playmaker, which they haven't really had much of. So we'll see how that plays out this year. You know the 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 Kansas of the Big Twelve prior to about six or seven years ago was Baylor. They were they were always in the basement. Then they had their moment in the sun. And now, if Kansas football does rise up, which program in the Big 12 is most likely to become the cellar dweller? Um, Baylor. Yeah, I mean, look, they're digging out of a huge scandal, so... I mean, we, we saw them go to... Well, I guess they finished, what, second to last last year? 
Yeah, I don't think though. I, with what uh, the facilities they have now, with with Matt Rule there, I don't think they're going to fall off the radar again. I was a little surprised to see Matt Rule's comment. I mean, this is the guy who was brought in there to clean up the program after what happened under Art Briles. Now they have another situation where some guys are accused of sexual assault and they've been suspended from the team. I'm not saying that's Matt Rule's fault, but his comments were something to the effect of, you know, guys are going to get suspended. That happens. A little flipping, I think, for the situation that he's taken over. Yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't see the press conference he did the other day. So, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, because everything I've seen wherever he has, you know, been in the spotlight with as it relates to that, I thought he's handled it very he's well. He's always so. said the right things. He, you know, it was it was uncharacteristic. And maybe maybe even I'm not getting the full context and that's unfair. But I don't know. It was a little surprising and it made me wonder... You know, every, remember at the time, everybody really commended him for salvaging that recruiting class, and they had almost no commitments when he came in, and they ended up signing a lot of guys. But the problem with that is you don't really get to know them. Like, how, how well can you really get to know somebody who you started recruiting in January and signs the beginning of February? So the three guys who are suspended are from that recruiting class, something, mm-hmm. to, something to be aware of. And, yes, Baylor yeah. last year finished – one and eight in the Big Twelve. Only Kansas at zero and nine was worse. We've gone exceptionally long on this episode. Hopefully, people are okay with that, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer. Nick Bink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a 7-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about it for years Ah, yeah As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 